Dirty Cab Blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th Retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. Never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front, these are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're talking about Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. The first Friday the 13th movie without the title, Friday the 13th. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing, and with me are... Stuart from L.A. Arnie, co-host of Star Wars Action News, which you can find at SWActionNews.com, the Star Wars Collecting Podcast. Okay, so we have Jason going to hell. This one took four years to come out after the last one. I guess the reception by the audience was the same as what we thought it was, or at least Stuart and I thought it was. And the final Friday, again with the final, and we see how well that held up, don't we? Don't you guys think this one actually had some real good things going for it? Well, let me start by talking behind the scenes. Part 8 did what no hero of the Friday the 13th series could do. It killed Jason. Paramount gave up and said, fuck it. We are done. Jason went to Manhattan and we are leaving him there. (laughs) And so New Line, there had been negotiations back and forth about wanting to do Freddy versus Jason to go back to the old days of Dracula versus the Wolfman. But no one would agree on who gets to make the money from it. So when Paramount gave up, New Line bought the rights to the Friday the 13th franchise with the intent of making Freddy vs. Jason. But a wrench gummed up their works because Wes Craven showed up and said, I want to make a new Nightmare film. And so they threw gobs of money at Wes Craven to make the masterpiece Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which we'll get to when we do our Nightmare on Elm Street series. (laughs) (laughs) But... In order to keep Jason in people's minds while Wes Craven's new nightmare was getting made, they decide to make Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday. And Sean Cunningham, who made the original Friday the 13th and had washed his hands of it for the seven sequels, is back in a producer role and it is his production company making this movie. So I think a lot of ways this is a fresh take on an old villain. And right away you can tell Cunningham is back because that opening sequence before the credits really takes its time. It really sets it up. It really gives you some false scares. It has the woman doing the ancillary things. And I love a couple of times, the girl is in the house. She goes to the cabin. She gets changed. She goes in the bathroom. And she uses the mirror, opens the cabinet of the mirror, closes it, does it again. And both times, Jason is not in the mirror behind her. They toy with the audience a little bit. And I felt that was much more of the Sean Cunningham kind of feel from the first movie. And I thought right away, this is a different movie than the last one. And thank God it was apparent straight away. I actually find this opening to be the best opening of any of the Friday the 13th movies. Better than the first one with the kids in the 50s getting killed. Because it's a total fake out because they use every Friday the 13th cliche. You've got the naked chick. And she's running around dressed in nothing but a towel as Jason stalks after her. 
and she finally gets to her location and she stops in the middle of the woods and Jason jumps out at her and bam, the FBI turn on the floodlights and blow him up, literally. I'm like, that is great because you just fucked with the entire audience. And might I add, when I saw this movie... For the first time, it was opening night. It was in theaters. And while that FBI agent under very few covers was running with the towel, a guy actually stood up in the theater and started yelling, cancel that bitch, Jason, cancel that bitch. (laughs) And it was perhaps the best cinema going experience of my life was the opening of this movie. Oh, my God. All right, guys, I have to cut both of you off here. Seriously? You thought this was a good one? <laughs> the opening oh my god. I, 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 uh, wow. I will concede this much. This movie is very, very clever. Too clever, I would argue. It is definitely trying to do the very 90s thing. Being ironic. Knowing that we all know the cliches and playing with those conventions. This is something they did a lot. You mentioned New Nightmare, that Wes Craven reboot of his uh, of Freddy Krueger. This one has a similar feel to me, in which they thought, oh, we can do something really different while honoring the legacy. And in both cases, I would argue they made one of the worst. Well, we will get into why. Another thing about this movie is they flushed part eight out with the toxic waste. There is no resurrection story here. There is no Jason rises from the morgue. There is no Jason rises from underwater. There's no Jason struck by lightning. Jason's There's just no there. Jason in this movie. I mean, I think we need to cut to the chase here. We find out that Jason is some kind of mystical creature apparition. And that anyone can be Jason if they just open up their mouth and suck face with whoever's curing his evil soul. You eat a heart or you, you know, suck on a black warty tongue and you I actually don't think that was a tongue. I think that was Jason hopping from person to person via mouth. Well, actually, what I thought Mm. it was is, and I think we have to go back just a step or two, they blow him up and then the heart is in the morgue and the guy eats the heart in a brilliant what-the-fuck moment when the guy starts chewing on the heart. And I believe the heart got to be like a hell spawn, more or less. So I thought it was the heart of Jason possessing the people and gaining more and more strength, sapping the energy out of the bodies it possesses. So that's a complete 180 from everything else we've heard up to this point. I agree with you, Stuart. It's a mystical thing. But on the other hand, it sort of does explain why Jason can't get killed, in a sense. You know? He's, he's magical. It does, but it doesn't, because it introduces as many problems as it yes, uh, yes, yes. solves. <laughs> yes. Because if it's this heart and Jason can't be killed, well, why was Roy the villain of part five? Jason should have just gotten back up again. You know, we didn't need Tommy to dig him up and plant the spike in him. Right. You know, if you took a child and you stuck him in a room in a TV and you raised him completely on horror movies, I think that he would make a movie that would resemble this because (laughs) there's nothing logical that happens in here. There's no character in here that feels human or that we feel connected to. Indeed, I don't even know who the main character of this movie was. They're jumping bodies, and we're never sure about who is the hero, and and they're all just kind of twits. But truly, it's so littered with horror movie allusions and references, and it never really seems to find a focus as to what it is. I feel the whole mumbo-jumbo surrounding Jason feels like the stitching together of, like, every horror movie rule from Rosemary's Baby to The Omen to to The Hidden. (laughs) It was just unwieldy. 
Well, here's what I thought when I first saw this movie in 93, and I still see it to this day. It's almost like because New Line had this and they were going to introduce Freddy versus Jason, they took a lot of the conventions right out of Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare because in Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare, it said Freddy can only be killed by his daughter. It takes a Kruger to kill a Kruger. Here, Jason can only be killed by his niece. And so it's very much like that. And it just seems like there's a lot of a mythology almost being built by New Line Horror. I don't know if it was intentional, but it's certainly there that in both movies, the final ones of the series, they bring in an heretofore unknown relative, or in this case, three, and have them be the ones who has to kill the person. Exactly, Arnie. You're the stickler for continuity. Does it make any sense to think that Miss Voorhees, back in the day, also had a daughter? Well, we don't know if it was her daughter. We know Mr. Voorhees, who was into the occult because it's the Voorhees home, had a daughter. I believe it may not be said in the movie, but I think I've read that it's a half-sister. Ah. Oh, okay. That. Well, that would have been nice to establish that because that right there took me out of it. I'm like, Jason had no sister. I think I may have gotten that out of one of the cutscenes. There's a ton of cutscenes on that DVD. You know, what's interesting mm. about you mentioning that, Stuart... I was ready to give them a mulligan on that one about the sister just because it's what they need for this plot and a lot of it was working for me so I was able to give them a little bit more. I think I said that on like part five or part four, the same kind of thing. Enough was working for me that I was more forgiving. Like that towel that the FBI agent was wearing as she's running through the forest in the beginning of the movie before the team destroys Jason – that's a magic towel. I've never seen a girl who can run with a towel and that thing stay on that well. And, you know, that kind of thing. It's funny to see that you acknowledge it and you move on. You know what I mean? And for them to have a sister and have that whole family kills a family thing, I guess they put it in here for us, for the characters, for more of an emotional connection. But unlike last time, where it felt so tagged on, this one was actually a plot point, And therefore, I think I was more forgiving so they could tell more of a story. That's how I saw it. To go back to what Stuart was saying, though, about how it seems to take from every horror movie, Jason killing his sister, that is so Michael Myers, and then Jason having killed his sister, going after his sister's daughter, his niece, well, that's Halloween 4 and 5. So in that respect, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, that we've seen this. Yes, definitely. And you know what? They know it, too. These people are always making visual references to horror movies. She looks just like Jamie Lee Curtis. They cut her hair just like Jamie Lee Curtis. So they know that they're doing this, and they know that we know that they're doing this. I think that that's the humor of this particular episode, is that it rewards anyone that's spent a life watching horror movies. Yes, and I think the blatant illusions they have in the movie, the actual in-jokes for the audience later on in the movie at the Voorhees home, also does that. But that was so blatant, it was actually funny. Like, I think it's supposed to be funny. The Necronomicon from Evil Dead, you mean? Yes, that, and I didn't know this at the time, but when I saw the movie, they had the Arctic box, the box from the Arctic Circle or Antarctica or whatever, and I didn't know that was a reference to Creepshow, but it is. I looked it up afterwards, I was wondering, what the heck is that box doing there? And then I... Oh, it's the crate that sucked in Adrian Barbeau. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see the movie. And then the jungle gym that he throws Steve in at the end of the movie is either the same one or the same model as is used in Hitchcock's The Birds. And I didn't pick that up as I was watching it. Again, I look 
looked up some information about this movie because I was wondering what that Arctic box was. So Yeah, I mean, it feels like a lot of ironic quotations here. Like, there's quotation marks everywhere. It feels like a Tarantino movie. Did you guys get that sense? Like, I know what came out before Natural Born Killers, but boy, I was getting that vibe all over here. There's a tabloid journalist who's out to exploit innocent people for his ratings, and there's just this sort of celebration of Jason as a mass murderer. There's a diner that serves... Uh, hockey mask burgers and Jason fingers, and it just really had that 90s put serial killers on a pedestal kind of ironic bent. Of course, what this movie had going for it was it was actually pre-OJ. Yes, it was pre-OJ, <laughs> indeed. And But you know what? Say what you will about Tarantino. He definitely has a better sense of dialogue and a better visual sense than the makers of this film. And it felt like a Tarantino movie without his best assets showing. You know, Stuart, I want to take it one further, and I want to ask you a question as well as Arnie about this. In addition to that ironic sense they had to it, this one really felt like the Terminator to me. It felt like people were actually fighting back. They were actually taking guns and weapons and attacking the person who was possessed by Jason. And they were fighting back, and he could not be stopped. He could not be killed, just like the Terminator. I thought that was an interesting take. Finally, people are fighting back. When he storms into the police station, of course, how can you not think that? I mean, Even the diner, too, though. The diner beginning of T2, the biker bar at the beginning of T2, they went into a diner here, and, and he kicked ass and took names and killed these people in clever ways. Yeah, of course, the, I think the illusion was obvious, but again, I think that kind of humor and that kind of tongue-in-cheekness to this whole thing really helped this movie, especially with the ironic touches Stuart was talking about, to blatantly call out like he's a Terminator. Like, I thought they acknowledged it and it made us accept it, for this is what Jason is in this movie. Yeah, more than just a Terminator reference, I agree with you. It felt like Terminator 2, Robert Patrick, you know, who's kind of a wiry guy. He's fit, but he's thin, unlike Arnold, who's really bulky. Right. Most of the people that Jason is inhabiting, you know, when we see Jason, when we see the people possessed by Jason in the mirror, it's Kane Hodder, who's a big guy in the classic mask, looking big and tough and all of that. But when they're running around, they look really skinny and like a normal person. And you're right, it does. It has that Robert Patrick T-1000 look. Can I ask a question while we're talking about the people Jason inhabits? Because throughout the movie, Jason hops from body to body because the bodies, I guess, can't hold him. And that was a plot device used in another movie, too, wasn't it, Stuart? There are so many movies. The Thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but the one that it really reeked of was The Hidden. I don't know if anybody knows that one. Well, there's one thing I'm thinking of particularly. I know for a fact they did this in the TV series for War of the Worlds, if that's not an obscure reference. But mm-hmm. I remember it. When the creatures inhabit the bodies, the bodies can't handle it and begin to decay. And so Jason has to hop body to body. But one scene that I'm just scratching my head, why was this not on the cutting room floor? Well, I guess it had to be in there for continuity reasons. The coroner eats the heart. The coroner becomes Jason. The coroner then kidnaps a cop, strips him naked, belts him down in some leather straps, and shaves his stash. <laughs> what the You know, fuck? he wanted to hurt him, I guess. You <laughs> shave a, a state trooper's stash, you really cut him to the quick. <laughs> no, I thought that was if he took their mirrored sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> you are so right. You are so right. What? Why? Yeah, what was with that? It's not that Jason better lip lock. Better lip lock. He was going to have to kiss the guy to put Jason into him, and he didn't want to get tickled. Didn't the coroner have a stash? Yeah, he had a stash too. Hmm. 
Well, I could come up with some bogus Jason facial hair shaving theory, but can't we just drop this and accept it that it's just stupid? Yeah, okay. It was just so okay. weird. This just took me out of the movie, and I'm like, when did this become a gay porn? It did have a little homoerotic quality to it, and that wasn't the only time that I was getting that vibe. There's another scene where one of the main characters, a sort of a guy that looked like Rob Schneider, I can't remember That's his character. That's the star name. of the movie. He's John D. LeMay, who was Steve in this movie, and he was the hero of Friday the Thirteenth, the series for two seasons. We can talk about that in a minute. But anyway, he's in a jail cell, and, like, there's this bounty hunter guy who's the, the actor from uh, 21 Jump Street. He does this whole seductive thing where he's like, give me your hand. He's, like, caressing them. I'm like, I don't know what's about to happen here, but they're in prison. They're two men. We've had this stash-shaving scene. I really was confused. Well, what thrills me about that scene is he breaks Steve's fingers for absolutely no reason, and then Steve lets him keep doing it. Over, I don't understand he wants the information, but my God, man, you have to have other bargaining chips. It didn't make any sense why this bounty hunter wanted to do that, but it was really fun to watch. The bounty hunter's another what the fuck, because <laughs> <laughs> what movie was that 21 Jump Street actor in? Because he was not in the same movie as all of the actors around him. Good call. He was... I thought for a while he was the main character. I thought we were supposed to like him. And then after that scene, I was like, okay, I get it. We don't like him. The moment that I realized this character was off the deep end is when he's being interviewed by the tabloid journalist. He's like, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jason. I think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog into a donut. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> is that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, that, um, you that know. Is in my head this is, I have a vision of a little girl doing kind of a fuck motion with a hot dog and a donut well I think he was you know laughing at their attempt to psychoanalyze him and the fact is the matter is, is we never really understand what his motivations are he has some kind of understanding about how to kill Jason this is the carrot that he keeps dangling in front of anyone that will listen oh you don't know how to kill Jason only I know how to kill Jason and so, yeah, he'll, he'll snap your fingers into bits, he'll, taunt, he'll demand high ransom, he'll do all of this thing. What was the answer? That it was the blood relation. It was the blood relation. I don't know if that was a special knife he handed her that turned into, like, the dagger of a jaunty. When... I thought, yeah, I thought it was from Golden Child. <laughs> yes, exactly. I want the knife. <laughs> Please. Give me the knife. Please. <laughs> but how did he know about this? He read Who, how, what was his relationship to Jason? This is a character, by the way, we've never seen, ever had a reference to nothing. He's just some bounty hunter, megalomaniac, who is at that original scene. We talked about the opening scene in the movie where the whole FBI unloads on Jason and blows him to bits. He's in the bushes going, mm-mm, that ain't going to work. <laughs> and if it's the heart, how come he just didn't burn the heart or something or go in? I don't know. I was confused about how he fit in with the rest of the story. And truly, they don't really seem to need him. I mean, I was confused. Steve breaks out of the jail cell. He could have taken the guy with him. He has a whole set of keys, and, he's, and this is the guy that knows how to kill him. He leaves him in the jail cell. Dude broke three of his fingers. And he also told him to see And Why? <laughs> Well, like, wait, let's back up a second, though. You said before, this guy has a history with JC, knows JC, knows all the stuff about Jason that no one else seems to know, and including the audience, because this is all new information about how to kill Jason, right? So 
This is the first Friday the 13th movie, as I mentioned, without a part nine in front of it, whatever. So actually, throughout the movie, I really thought I got the wrong movie from the video store. I thought I was supposed to watch Jason X because I thought maybe I missed a movie because everything's so good about catching you up, you know? And that's why one of the reasons I looked up the stuff after I watched this movie was to make sure I watched the right movie in the right order. And it turned out I did. It just was all new information. So I agree with you. It seemed really weird. But again, this movie had, like Arnie talked about the last movie, about having this kind of humor to it when they got to New York, which you and I completely missed, Stuart. But this one, I kind of got, I think I was in on it from the beginning. It had this tongue-in-cheek, ironic thing going. It had these absolutely gruesome deaths. And so it was kind of a balance back and forth, a dance, if you will, between the gruesome and the, yeah, we're going to have fun with this in between. All your points are extremely valid, but I was able to get on this boat and enjoy the movie because the movie allowed me to. It brought me in. Let me put the bridge over the troubled waters between you two. (laughs) Thank you. Because I understand what both of you are saying, and I come down right the middle. I got on board with this movie. I enjoyed this movie, but I agree with Stuart. This was not a Jason movie. Jason doesn't show up until the end. This is any horror movie, and it's a good horror movie in my opinion. But what it lacked was the man in the hockey mask, which is the only thing that coherently ties the series together. We got a few glimpses of him in a mirror, and now all these other people are Jason. But it was quite obvious that the actors made zero attempts to be Kane Hodder. They were going to be their actor selves, whereas in Terminator 2, whoever was supposed to be the Terminator kind of tried to do a Robert Patrick walk, even the fat twins. But the in this movie, there was no Jason. They were just unstoppable serial killer X. And so I can see why Stewart is saying there's no Jason here. But by the same token, what they gave us was so much better than some of the movies that did have Jason part three and part eight. Let's not even talk about Roy of part five ever again. (laughs) But I, I got on board with this and I liked it too. And then I remember when I was in the theater and Jason finally appeared at the end, the audience cheered. It was great. He was finally there after calling up Aaron Gray's vagina. Whoa, yeah. I mean, hello. I'm not sure about you, but I had a couple of Buck Rogers jokes that went through my head when I saw that happen. I don't know. All I know is I was thinking, all right, so. (laughs) (laughs) Although I do have one question. If Jason could become Jason again, I'm, I'm guessing that's why he was hunting down his sister now after all these years is because he needed to become Jason again, right? Right. Exactly. He could become reborn as Jason through a dead Voorhees woman. Why not go back to the head of mommy? Um, logical? (laughs) My other question is, was this movie at Camp Crystal Lake? Okay, thank you for bringing that up. The license plates said Connecticut, and the morgue was in Ohio. I noticed that the morgue was in Youngstown. And then apparently it's called Cunningham, Connecticut, which obviously is a Sean Cunningham reference. Very clever, and you saw that on the police car. The whole series, even the bad Manhattan movie, okay, they start off in New Jersey. They're in New Jersey. When the hell did they get to Connecticut from Ohio? They actually said on the news, because I backed it up, I'm like, why is the morgue in Ohio? And they actually said on the news that the body was transported to Youngstown more. It went from Crystal Lake to Youngstown and then ends up in Connecticut? The Voorhees home is in Connecticut. Why? But then, wait a second. Steve picks up some campers. 
who are going to Crystal Lake to have unprotected sex and not get killed, as they say, because Jason's finally gone. That was very funny. Yeah, it was a good... I liked it. I, I liked that they did a twist. It was have unsafe sex and die versus have sex and die. <laughs> very 90s, Bill Clinton era. But what I don't understand is Jason killed the campers at Crystal Lake who were having unsafe sex. And then he went to Connecticut. What was Steve doing at Crystal Lake? Where is Connecticut in relation to New Jersey? I failed geography, okay? I think the filmmakers couldn't be able to answer that. That's what I kept thinking. I was like, these are people that grew up watching horror movies and never looked at a map of the United States. Nothing about it is logical or coherent. It's just full of in-jokes. I will say one thing, just backing it up a little, you talked about that couple in the woods. I am very hard on this episode, this installment, part nine. But I will say this, that Death in the Tent was the most grisly thing the series has ever done. It shocked me. That death where she's on top of him in the tent, and there is a Jason-possessed person is walking up to them, and he tears into the tent and literally slices her in half during her climax. I mean, did you guys think that was as effective as I did? I mean, it was gross. I actually loved that death. I thought it was very Skinamax, if you will, how they kept on going back to her getting off on the tent, you know, in and out, like, uh, <laughs> bad phrasing there, sorry. Um, they, <laughs> they, they went back and forth with the approach and her having sex. And I loved the impalation and the blood splattering on his face, him screaming, her screaming. I thought when her body was finally sliced in half, it looked like a rubber body. But again, I'll give it to you because up until that point, it was absolutely effective. I thought it was so nasty. And especially after eating that heart, they let us know what kind of movie this is going to be. I thought, damn, they went there. It was just, I agree with you 100%. It was one of the best kills we have seen so far in this series. It was awesome. It was a shocker. And I, I don't get shocked by gore, but that one, I literally just, I think I gasped out loud when I saw it. I've seen Hostel. This was nothing. Oh, I'm so jaded by today's horror movies. It was well set up and well executed, but I wasn't shocked. It wasn't like, oh, it was, I was more shocked by the eating of the heart. That was, mm, that kind of was gross, but it was well shot and executed. I like what Brock was saying about the in and out, but <laughs> I wasn't like, oh my God, he cut her in half. Of course, he cut that one guy in half who was walking on his hands a few movies back. It's just, we were watching the unrated version this time. Which is right. I feel like they got something past the MPAA at this point. No, that we were really be... watching the unrated cut, the I laser disc. Oh, aha! Thank you. That makes sense. This was the first movie made with the intent of who cares what we put in theaters? There's always laser disc and DVD. I have a question. When we see Jason in the beginning of the movie, and then when he jumps out of the hell hole at the end, oh, before he goes to hell, but you know, he jumps out of the basement and he's reborn after going into Aaron Gray's for JJ. The mask itself the hockey mask it seems like that is his face this time his grotesque head is almost like it's almost digging into his head so that's his face no longer a mask did you get that impression as well absolutely it was definitely every movie they redesigned jason's makeup some and in this one you know let's face it after part eight we don't want that mask to come off anymore we don't want to see any more bad puppetry so <laughs> they just made the mask the face and they gave him some hair again which is what was actually more impacting to me he had some long tendrils of hair kind of sprouting out but yeah the mask was dug into his face like he'd worn it so long you know if you want to be a continuity buff the acid melted it onto his face or something i don't know Whenever you take the mask off, it's always a little disappointing. 
you got to keep the mask on. The mask is what we understand the person to be. And when the mask comes off, be it Michael Myers, Darth Vader, or Jason, it just never looks right. I thought it was effective in a couple of the movies. I think it worked pretty well in, you know, part seven, six, seven. But yeah, in two and especially three, when he's like, hey, it's me, Jason. I look like sloth. <laughs> <laughs> And in part eight, when he looked like the Marshmallow Man, yeah, those didn't work. But making the mask part of his face, it was definitely an interesting choice. I went with it. I want to talk a little bit about the people Jason kills in this movie other than those campers. Because I like the townspeople. I thought that there was a great mixture of people. First of all, you have Erin Gray, who we've mentioned her a couple times. You've seen her in Silver Spoons. You've seen her in Buck Rogers. Now she or she is here. You've got the people owning the diner that Stuart talked about who's selling the Jason burgers. And you've got, like, I think they're a husband and wife team of a big, fat woman and a really tiny guy who was on Designing Women and Will and & Grace. And then their son. And none of these characters, especially in... When we were doing part eight, Stuart talks about how much he hated the kids on that boat. Here, first of all, there's no kids except for those three campers. They're all adults, every single one in the movie. And second, I don't think there's a caricature among them other than perhaps the bounty hunter. Every single person seemed to be acting kind of like real people. And when they died, it didn't feel quite as much as like the movie had set up the dominoes to watch them fall, like in every previous Friday the 13th. Yep, I'll go with that. I agree with you. You know, I agree. There are no teenagers in this, and that does throw the dynamic off a little bit. But there is an infant. And can I just say that the babysitting here is deplorable. (laughs) (laughs) They stick the baby in a cardboard box in the back of a diner and for hours. And then she gets mad when it's stolen. She's like, why did you take my baby from the cardboard box? (laughs) If it wasn't going to be the bounty hunter, it would have been the social services. Somebody should take that baby away from her. She was horrible. What else I liked is there's one scene, and I've always found the scene to be strangely effective because, as we've mentioned, this movie is somewhat self-parroting and ironic. But there's one scene, and I cannot remember the character's name, but she's the redhead who works at the diner and was watching the baby. Yeah. The heroine of the movie comes in with the baby to find the redhead cleaning Aaron Gray's blood stains out of the carpet, trying to get the blood of this woman's mother's death out of her home before she gets there. And I found that to be an actual kind of touching thing, because when you're watching these movies, you know it's not real. But if if it were real, somebody has to clean up the blood. It, that kind of hit me. It's like there's a woman there looking at the blood from where her mother was murdered. I, that that has always stuck with me as a scene more powerful than the movie surrounding it. Well said. Well said. Overall, I just thought all of the characters were really well done. Even that redheaded chick. I mean, she pulls out a rifle and starts going to town. Admittedly, she misses and kills an innocent bystander. I don't know if you guys saw that. It was in the background. No, she's see. shooting at the cop. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. He's, he's, eating, he's eating in one of the booths. Yeah, he's eating in one of the booths, and she just blows him away. Kind of funny, but it was completely in the background. Again, something you don't expect in one of these movies is some background humor. But, uh, yeah, overall, I thought the cops acted pretty much like cops. I liked that the Steve character had kind of a buddy relationship with one of the cops, and the cop's like, I'm going to try to get you out, but, you know, I know you didn't kill those people, but everybody thinks you're a murderer. I found the whole thing, with the exception of Jason body hopping, very believable. 
so you guys didn't have the same problem I did, which is that I didn't know where to focus. I didn't know who I was supposed to like. I didn't know what was going to happen. It almost was the opposite problem of most of these movies, which is that usually they're so formula, it's obvious who the good one is and how she'll live and who will die. This one, I'm like, I don't even know where it's going to next. I don't even, they're making it up as they go along. It's trying to listen to a 12-year-old tell you a story while they're, you know, hopped up on sugar and telling you about some horror movie that they saw three weeks ago. I'm like, this is not coherent to me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what a great analogy. That was wonderful. I actually was able to follow the 12-year-old throughout the most of the movie, though. I actually thought Steve was clearly the protagonist of this movie. And I understand what you're saying, though, because there were a lot of characters and there were a lot of connections between the two char- all the characters. And I felt it really worked. I felt that we really didn't know what was going to happen. We really didn't know who was going to die. I mean, we could pretty much suspect the fat woman at the diner was going to get hers because she was so bossy and brassy. But what I liked is she was hickey without the come get my stew of part five. (laughs) Exactly. But I honestly was able to follow this one pretty well and really get invested in the characters, dare I say that. And I say that tongue firmly in cheek. I mean, this is a Friday the 13th movie. But what I mean by that is that I think it was pretty clear for me anyway. So, no, I had an opposite reaction to the movie that you did, Stuart. I'm going to go again with Brock on this one. Here's the thing. I think, you know, Stuart, one of your complaints, and correct me right now if I'm wrong, is that this didn't feel like a Friday the 13th movie. It felt like every other horror movie, right? Yes. Well, every time they try to do something different with Jason, it fails so miserably. Let's put him against a telekinetic. Let's put him in New York. Let's send him to deep space. And it fails and fails and fails again. Here they try something different, and it works. Does it feel like every other Friday the 13th movie? Not at all. But this is 1993. If you want to watch Friday the 13th Part 1, go rent the fucking thing. They did something different with Jason here, and it worked. It became a good movie. Is it indicative of the previous eight installments? No. But did the movie work on a horror level, on an entertainment level? And was it well made? And I would say yes to all three of those points. I was much more forgiving of this movie than I was the last one, obviously, because this movie tried. This movie had a point of view. This movie had a plot. It had a screenplay that was, as Stewart said, more clever. More clever. They think it's more clever than it actually is, but they, at least they try to do it. And I think I said the same thing about two and maybe even four. In the same kind of way, I was more forgiving of their faults because the movie actually gave a shit. I think this movie knew what it was, knew what it wanted to be, and came through. Like, Steve is picking up those kids at the lake, the two hot-for-each-other kids who get killed in the tent. And then you have that redhead, the third wheel of all third wheels. Why on earth is she going camping with two other people by themselves? I'll never know. But Steve mentions, as Arnie said before, you know, Steve actually calls out that they're going up there for some pot-soaking premarital sex. They actually call out the M.O. of these movies. And that is a nod to the audience like, yeah, yeah, we're doing something different here. We're having fun with this. Enjoy. Come along for the ride. So when the little guy from Will and Grace gets his face stuck in a fry vat, and when the chatty woman gets her face literally punched in, it's really fun. Those kind of over-the-top kills work in this movie because they earn that cred of we are here to have fun with this, come along for the ride. It's not a comedy like number six, but it certainly isn't as serious as number two or four. You know what I mean? 
I actually like part seven better than this movie, and I don't think that this is a particularly good horror movie. But I hear what you're saying, and I'll concede this much. There was a sense of humor at play here, and if you could get into the mindset, it probably was fun. I think, uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, this series peaked for me at part six, and has been on a steady decline ever since then. And, Do you uh, think this is worse than eight? No, no, okay, no, no. Okay, you said steady declines. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, he is crawling back from the gaping abyss that was the last installment. And so anything, by comparison, looks better. But no, I honestly don't think that this is one of the better ones. And I don't think it's a good standalone horror movie. And I don't think it's a... I know it's not a very good movie depicting Jason and featuring Jason. I would actually would go so far, Stuart, as to say if I never watched a Friday the 13th movie before and I came in here I could probably follow what was going on I know Jason's the guy with the mask and all that kind of stuff and I'm not gonna say don't watch the other ones and watch this one first but you could watch this one not having seen the other ones and enjoy it I think they wanted you to because New Line didn't own the rights to all the other ones that was still on by Paramount they had other designs for it and well let's just get to it they were setting it up for something even bigger what did you guys think of the Freddy glove at the end and the cackling Freddy laugh? I thought it was awesome. I remember getting a complete geek on for that moment. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I waited 10 years. Honestly, I never thought they would get those two together. I thought that this was some cockamamie plan that we can get Freddy and Jason in the same movie, and that never seemed to work. And I actually read a draft of one of the scripts that mercifully wasn't made that involved bubonic plague, and <laughs> it was just like, oh, they'll never get this thing off the ground. So I, ne- I was like, yeah, right. Good luck with that one. I read a draft that had a cult of Freddyites. Oof. Yeah, bad. Well, you know, remember I said earlier that I had to go back after watching this movie and see if I missed one? Well, the Freddy glove comes out, and I know there's Jason X after this one, or was supposed to be, because I know Freddy vs. Jason's the last one. But to contribute to my confusion of, did I watch this movie out of order, when I saw the Freddy glove, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, isn't there a movie in between? So I got totally screwed up, and obviously some stuff happened, and we'll probably get to that when we get to Freddy vs. Jason. But I thought that was really cool and fun to have the glove there. I mean, obviously, it's an iconic glove, it's an iconic thing, and I thought it was pretty cool. And you know what? This movie, I really felt, was for horror fans. And I've never seen The Birds, so I didn't get The Jungle Gym. But I did get The Necronomicon, and the fact that Kane Hodder is one of the victims. At the very beginning, when the coroner is possessed by Jason, and there's those two security guards, and one guy goes, Jason's a pussy. Well, that's Kane Hodder, Jason, right there. You've always loved movie in-jokes. I mean, I remember you talking about how much you love Tropic Thunder. I think you even had a Jones for Last Action Hero, so I know that's... I'm one of the few who will stand by Last Action Hero. And, And this feels like Last Action Hero, Last Action Horror Movie Hero. I mean, this really has that same kind of really broad comedy with lots of in jokes about horror movies. And I don't think they're particularly good jokes, but I got them. So there's a couple of things I want to bring up before we wrap this up. First of all, the music. Now, I felt the music was done on a Casio keyboard or it was done for a computer game. I felt it was very like 1993 Star Wars X-Wing kind of. I think the word is MIDI, M-I-D-I, right? A MIDI. Yeah, a very one-channel-y, bullcrappy, like, you know, listen to me turn on my Casio keyboard. Did that music bother you at all, guys? 
Oh my God! You know what? You know you've really messed up when I'm paying attention to the music. Like usually, music is in service of what's going on screen. I was consciously aware whenever that music would kick on, and yes, it felt cheesy. It felt not only did it not sound good, it did. It sounded like something for a website that someone programmed yes. or a video game or something. I'm like, they didn't have an orchestra. This is just like one instrument, <laughs> one cheesy 1985 Casio keyboard. I mean, exactly. terrible. I honestly didn't notice the music in it, so oh, I can't wow. really comment. And I'm like, Stuart, I only notice music when it's really good, like an Elfman score, or when it's really bad, like in... Friday the 13th, part eight. <laughs> and one more thing I thought was really kind of funny to me. When Jason is finally sucked to hell and he has those big Muppet-like hands, I kind of felt that <laughs> I had a flashback to my comment in the last podcast about the Muppets take Manhattan came first and Jason went to Manhattan after, that the Muppets were going after him for revenge for going to Manhattan after they did. I thought it was really kind of fun. It was almost like Muppet hands combined with the Zool hands from Ghostbusters. They were so over the top. It was great. I can see Zool, but I don't know so much about Muppets. It just looked like they were real arms in styrofoam casings, yeah, you know? Exactly. exactly. They were obviously gloves, long gloves. Point is, I thought it was really funny, and I laughed out loud. I was just picturing, like, Fozzie Bear reaching up from hell, grabbing for Jason. <laughs> the only thing that— It really... would have been a much more entertaining sequel if the Muppets <laughs> took back Manhattan than— uh in this movie, but hey, you know, I, I deal with the cards given me. <laughs> the only problem I had with the arms, quite honestly, is I'm a bigger Freddy fan than I am Jason, and that arm that pops up, I know now that it is Kane Hodder's arm. When I saw it, I knew it was some stuntman's arm, because Robert England is wiry. That arm was beefy. That was a thick, muscular arm with a Freddy glove. That was not Freddy. It really felt like what it was, which was a throwaway moment. Like they said, hey, this will be cool. It doesn't really feel like the rest of the movie. And honestly, I never thought they would follow up on it. And indeed, we have to wait on a whole other movie before they do. So I guess we should really recap this as we always do. Do you recommend Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday? Stuart? I think it's on the lower end of things, but it's certainly better than the very worst of the series. I would say that if you saw part one, two, four, and six, you could be done. But if you needed another one, go ahead and watch this one. Arnie? I would recommend this, and it's not a stereotypical Jason movie, which is, I think, one of the things it's got going for it. You know, it's kind of like coming up this summer, we have Terminator 4, and for the first time, they're fucking with the formula. It's not, hey, a Terminator goes back in time and another person goes back in time to save them. They're being in the future. They're mixing it up. Here, they mixed it up, and the cocktail that came out to extend that metaphor far further than it should go <laughs> was tasty. And I, as well, am going to recommend this one. Of course, in context of the series, you almost could, as I said before, almost could watch this one not having seen the rest of this series. But with all the horror in-jokes and all the fun and tongue-in-cheek stuff of the horror genre and even this series, you're better off having seen a few. But honestly, I thought it worked really well, and I had a good time. And isn't that what it's all about? So thanks, guys. We'll talk to you when Jason goes to space in... Jason X. Oh, he goes to space? I thought he starts a civil rights movement. <laughs> waka, waka, waka. <laughs> Talk to you soon, guys. Bye.
Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did, if you did, if you did. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.